Turn with me to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 8 and down to the end of the chapter and verse 16. So just a quick background. A few months ago, they left Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, were delivered when Egyptians were drowned in the Red Sea. They were led into the wilderness where they didn't have food or water, and they complained a lot. And God gave it to them as a way to show his care and to train them as his people. And so there was three tests. There was no there was bitter water, then there was no food, and then there was no water. And God provided each time and was gracious with his people. And then we come to this verse in chapter uh, 17, verse 8, which is a little bit different than the ones before that. And so they are still in the wilderness near Mount Sinai. And in verse 8 it says, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel and Rephidim. Rephidim is where they had camped. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone, put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called his name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Interesting passage. It, as many of you hopefully have read this passage already, kind of hard to figure out what this is about, why this is here. Uh, we get manna from heaven and God providing water, and even the next couple chapters talk about Mount Sinai. But what's this about? How does this fit into the picture of the Bible? Where's Jesus in all of this? Who, what does this matter to us? But as we look into it, as with every scripture, the more you peer and more you unfold it, you're going to see that it's an integral part of the Bible. And that's why it's here. Every passage in the Bible was put in there for a reason and was for our purpose, was for us to learn from, and with enough meditation, we can see the truth. So Israel's on its way from the sea, the Red Sea where they found salvation, to Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is where they're going to receive God's law. That's significant. They've been saved. They're now God's people. They're now free from, from uh, Egyptian control. And they're headed to Mount Sinai where they will meet with God and get the Ten Commandments. And then after that, they're going to the Promised Land. But along the way, they run into some problems. And this is sort of, you can see the picture here. We're saved in the wilderness, headed towards God's revelation to us, and then finally the promised land. How do we live along the way? So we're going to see how Israel handled it, how God taught them, and then again, how that affects us and how we should live in our own wilderness, as it were. So Israel faces its first external conflict and must fight. Yet God is still the one who saves. So also we face real evil, opposition, 
Yet we have a warrior and a priest as well in Christ. So now we can participate in that struggle. And I'm going to explain all of that. Number one, external conflict. You, just, you see what's changed here for them. Before it was all internal conflict. They complained because they had no water. They complained because they had no food. They complained because the water wasn't good enough. They went out and tried to gather too much food. They tried to keep the food overnight. They brought a case against Moses and against God. You see how it's all internal problems? Their wicked heart was revealed. And so we learned that most of our problems come from within us. But here, it's an external problem. This wasn't their doing. They were doing exactly what God said. As far as we can tell, they weren't complaining. Someone from the outside shows up to fight them. Now, the Amalekites don't know much about them, except that they live in this part of the region. They're descendants of Esau, and they pop up occasionally after this and never in a good sense. So this first outside opposition, there are people out to get them. That changes things, doesn't it? When it's just you and your problems, you sort of work through them. But now there's people outside, and you can get all your problems squared away and still have problems. And so we see here that Amalekites show up to attack Israel, but they're not just a group of people. They're evil. It's an evil force set on stopping God's redemption. God is saving his people. He's bringing them out of Egypt. He's bringing them to the promised land, and eventually he's going to bring Christ out of them. The Amalekites show up to stop that plan. And Deuteronomy explains about the Amalekites a couple books later. It says, remember when Amalek did to you, what, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. So referring back to this passage. How he met you on the way. So this is the group of people. And attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. The Amalekites didn't have a fair war. So as you travel through, if you've ever traveled with a group of people, like kids, they stretch out, don't they? Slow ones, the weak ones, the tired ones, the bored ones, they all stretch out. And so if you have no scruples in war, you see it with animals a lot of times, who do they attack? The weak animal, the one that's dragging behind. Because if you attack the main body, you'll probably lose. So you attack the weak ones. So the Amalekites come out of nowhere. They rode camels at this time. It says later they, they domesticated camels. And camels are actually really fast. They run about 45 miles an hour. They come charging up to the, to the back part of the, the Israelite army and start killing the kids killing the older people, killing the injured. That's evil. That's not just, well, we've got a difference of opinion and your way or my way. No, this is attacking people in an evil way that undermines your own integrity. So they're not just a different group of people. Sometimes people look at the Old Testament and they're like, why does Israel act this way in killing people? Here's one of the reasons. The Amalekites were not just, hey, this is our land. They showed up and tried to stop God's plan to save his people. Unprovoked. And so what does God say? He says, you've got to go out and stop them. You've got to do something. You're being attacked. You need to respond. You have to fight back. And so Israel fights on God's behalf. Joshua shows, God, uh, Moses says to Joshua, this is the first time Joshua was brought up, but everyone already knows who he is because the book was written later. So Joshua is going to be sort of the general, and he later takes over from Moses. But this is where he first introduces him. So, jo so Moses says to him, choose, out, choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Pick some warriors, give them some swords, and go fight these people. 
They're, gonna, they're killing us. So Joshua, with the sword, he's the warrior aspect of this, goes out and fights Amalek. Now, that's different, isn't it? Because before it was just, wait here and God's going to give you water. Watch him destroy the Egyptians. But things have changed. They're in a different stage of their growth. Now they participate in the fight. Then Moses also participates. He goes up on the hill with the staff that represents God's power and does something really weird. When he raises his hands, Israel wins. When he lowers his hands, the Amalekites win. Can you imagine being on the battlefield? Kind of like, Moses, lift your hands up. We're losing. It's a weird way to run a battle, isn't it? Now, I imagine the guys that were fighting did not have time to look back and see what Moses was doing. And Moses may not even realize what he was doing. But what Moses is doing is he's interceding for the people. They need God's help. They can't do it on their own. But God's not going to just destroy the Amalekites. He wants them to fight. So Moses is standing between the people and God. And as he raises his arms with the staff of God in a posture of prayer, that's how they prayed in the Old Testament. They would raise their arms. They would raise their hands. God would give them the strength to win. And when he lowered his hands, God would remove the strength. Does that seem a little bit, I don't know, manipulative? Like, why didn't God just give them the strength the whole time? What this whole arm-raising thing? What about the guys on the battlefield? They're doing what they're supposed to. We see God showing his power in a different way, but still showing his power. He wants Israel to fight, but he doesn't want them to think that they can do it on their own. So he has, a, he has his own method, which is, Moses, raise your arms, and they win. Now, that may not make sense to us, but mostly because we're not God. And so when we look at Scripture, we're like, that's how God wanted to do it. And that must have been the very best way it could have happened. And when we say, ah, it doesn't make sense to me, it's okay to say that. It's okay to even say, I don't, that's not how I would have done it. That's okay to say, too. As long as you then say, but this is how it should have happened. And if I knew everything God had knows, I would have done the same thing. But the point here is that Joshua is fighting with his people. They're not pretending to fight. They're actually fighting. And Moses is actually lifting his hands up. He's not pretending to. Yet, who's doing the work? So we see human interaction. It's like on a roller coaster. Why do you have to lift his hands up? You ever ride on a roller coaster? You ever see people that raise their hands up? Why do you do that? Scarier. You lose control. There's some aspect that says if we can just hold on to the rail, when the belt breaks, we'll be okay. So when you raise your hand, you let go, you're sort of letting go of any concept of control. That's why prayer looks like this. So Moses is saying, I'm going to raise my hands and things happen, but I understand that just the fact of raising my hands is letting go. It's a symbolic gesture of losing control. Now, one of the things this passage deals with is how much... Do you participate, and how much does God do? Does God do everything, and you do nothing? Or do you do everything, and God helps you out? Is God in control? Do your actions matter? Which is it? Is God doing it, or are you doing it? This is a really big question. Who's responsible for the outcome? Joshua, who's down there fighting? If Joshua dropped his sword, would he have won? No. What about Moses? If Moses had not raised his arms, would they have won? No. But isn't God in control? How do we balance this dynamic of doing things and trusting God? 
Part of the answer is you don't. You just do what the Bible says. And if you can't handle that answer, you're going to try to find ways to manipulate. Sometimes you just say, Joshua fought really hard, and Moses held up his hand a long time, and then God did everything. Not everything else, but everything. And those two don't go together. And it's okay to say those two don't go together. But they still exist next to each other. So external conflict, they fight against the Amalekites. Moses prays, and things happen. Yet we see that it's all under divine control. God is the warrior. God is defeating the Amalekites as much as he defeated the Egyptians. That's why God's saying, Moses, raise your hand, so that when you lower your hand and raise your hand, you can see who's actually winning the battle. It's a very graphic display that says that everyone knows that raising or lowering your arms on a hill next to a battle doesn't have any effect on the battle, except for here. It's a picture that God is actually winning. God defeats the enemy through human effort. God defeats the enemy through human effort. There's a theme through the whole Bible. It's called the theme of the divine warrior. The divine warrior theme is that God fights for his people, that God is a warrior. And we see it here. We saw it back in Exodus. Who fought the Egyptians? God did. He killed them. He was the warrior who stood before the Egyptians and battled them and won. It goes all the way through the Bible. It's an important theme that God kills the enemy. He is a warrior that fights for his people. And that's how we understand some of the Old Testament passages like this, where God curses the Amalekites and wipes them out. If you talk to people who don't believe in the Bible, they're going to call this genocide. And that God commits genocide, and you can't worship a God that commits genocide. That's a very real problem. So how do we deal with it? We understand the concept of a holy war. Now, holy war gets tossed around a lot. The, 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 I think the Islamic word for it is jihad. But holy war is a, is, a, is a concept in all ancient cultures, and it's in the Bible. So what God does here is he declares holy war on the Amalekites. Trump Longman says, the key element of holy war is that Yahweh, the divine warrior, led Israel to battle and won the victory for them. That doesn't seem fair that you can wipe out an entire group of people because they attacked you one time. That's exactly what God does. So there's a couple aspects of this to understanding. You're never fully going to understand it. But number one, they weren't just attacking them. They were trying to stop God's plan to save the world. The Amalekites were trying to keep you from being saved. They were trying to keep heaven from happening. It's not just, oh, they killed and wanted to take the Israelite stuff. They wanted to stop Israel from getting to the promised land, from having children who would then have children, who would have Joseph and Mary, who would have Jesus, who would die for you. Same story. Nothing has been broken. So the Amalekites, if they had managed to defeat Israel, you wouldn't be here right now. You would not be in this room right now if the Amalekites had won. Aren't you glad God declared holy war against the Amalekites so that you could be here right now trusting Christ as Savior and worshiping together with other people? Tie yourself to this story. This is your story. The Amalekites, Amalekites are fighting you. You just hadn't showed up yet. And so God declares holy war. Now, in the Old Testament, God only declares holy war on certain people. 
those people who attempt to stop his redemption plan. Go through the Old Testament, you'll see it. Primarily, it's those who lived in the land of Canaan that was promised to Israel. The Amalekites are added to the list here. They wouldn't have been on the list if they had just minded their own business. They got added to the list, and that's why God says, write it down for, for a, uh, a memorial so that you know that it's okay to kill the Amalekites so that my plan can move forward. So God declares holy war on them because they try to stop his plan to save the world. But the bigger picture is God created the Amalekites. And if God created them, God can destroy them. Don't compare Stalin, Hitler, Idi Amin to God. Those are fellow humans killing their own brothers and sisters of the human race. That's not the same as the creator determining what he will do with his own creation. So applying terms like genocide to God are bringing God down to our level. It's a way of worshiping yourself. And people feel like they're upholding justice, but they're not. They're raising themselves above God. God is not a human in this passage. He is the creator. And if he wants to destroy some of his creation because they're evil, that is just and good. And we just have to accept that. And if it's hard to accept, we humble ourselves before the scripture. And when people mock us and say, you serve a God who commits genocide and kills children, you say, I don't understand it, but I know God is good, and I know the Bible is true, and I submit to it. And that's hard to do. But look how Moses responds. Moses responds to God's work in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial, so he wrote it, and Moses built an altar and called its name Yahweh Nissi, or the Lord is my banner. So Moses sees what happens. Now, he's part of it. He was the one raising his hands, but what's he do at the end? He goes, this was God's work. So he builds an altar, not to sacrifice anything, but to offer praises to God as a physical reminder that God had done something for him and he had not done it himself. And he gives it a name. Yahweh is my banner. What does that mean? In a battle, we've all seen this, you've got the, the, the guy who carries the colors, the guy who carries the flag. He doesn't have a gun. Why? Because it's more important that he carries the flag, that he carries the colors, that he carries the banner, the incense, and everyone unites around it. And as soon as the flag hits the ground, someone picks it up. And if, you look, and if you're in a battle and you look around at, in the old days and there was no flag flying, things were bad. Things were really bad. But if the flag was flying, you would rally around it. You still had a chance to sort of regroup. That's a common theme through war. So Moses says, we just had a battle. It wasn't Joshua. It wasn't me. It was God. We gathered around God. We identified with God. We relied on God. God is our banner. Yahweh, the Lord, Jehovah, is our banner. And so Moses finds Israel's identity in God, in Jehovah. Now, think of where Israel is. Who were they before? Slaves. Egyptian slaves. That was their identity. God delivers them. Now, who are they? They don't know. They've only been out in this world for a couple months. They don't know who they are. They don't know who they're supposed to be. They know some stuff. They're God's people. What does that mean? So Moses is saying, we are finding our identity. That's a big deal for everyone. Who am I? Right? Teen angst is all about who am I? Midlife crisis, who am I? 
older people, like, who am I now that my life has changed? Moses has given us the answer. He's saying, the Lord is your banner. The Lord is your identity. Without an identity, you live in a sort of a, a living hell. Dante, you heard Dante, Dante's Inferno. He tried to describe hell in his own way. He describes one of the circles of hell this way. I saw a banner there upon the mist. Circling and circling, it seemed to scorn all paws. So it ran on, and still behind it pressed a never-ending route of souls and pain. What's this picture here? There's an identity, but it won't stop. It keeps on running, circling, and no one can catch it, but everyone keeps on trying. They're trying to find their identity, but they can't. Dante says, that's hell. You know why suicide is a problem? Because people gave up trying to find out who they were. They can't figure it out, and they say, I can't live this way, so I'm going to kill myself. It's a huge problem. Military has it. Transgenders have it. All these people who are trying to find out who they are, and transitions especially, teenagers have it. Why? They don't know who they are, and they got tired of trying to figure it out. They can't live without an identity. Now, many of us don't struggle with that. Why? Maybe because we found an identity that lasts for a little while. We found a banner to gather around. Maybe it's our family. Maybe it's our abilities. Maybe it's our experience in the past. And so we're okay for right now. What Moses is saying is you need to identify who's going to keep you. The true identity. He says, Yahweh is my banner. Are you going to identify with God or not? If you don't identify with God, you will die. Slowly from the inside and then eventually from the outside. But if you live with God, you have his identity. And you can see where that leads. So they worked. They fought. God won the victory. Moses re recognizes that. But here's something for us. This war right here is not over. The Amalekites are gone. David and Saul wiped them out. They're gone. But the war is not over. Because you know who was backing the Amalekites? Satan. Now, in the modern world, talking about demons and spirits, that's kind of backwards. But the Bible says there's more to this world than a bunch of people living in the desert. There are, there's a real evil force that's trying to stop God's plan. You've got problems in your life, and some of those problems are outside people trying to destroy you. It's Satan trying to kill you. It's Satan saying, I'm going to stop God's work in your life. And sometimes you can't explain it. And sometimes you don't know what's happening. And sometimes there's nothing that you've done. That's what happened here, and that's what still happened. The war continues. The rest of the Bible is the story of Satan continuing to try to stop God's plan. Didn't work with the Amalekites. He didn't give up. You are God's people now. Guess who Satan wants to stop? You. You're the target now. Satan is waiting to get you. Not in sort of a spooky, mysterious way, but in the same way that the Amalekites were trying to kill the Israelites. And so what does God say? First of all, your enemies are not human. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Let me put some words in place of that. For we do not wrestle against Hillary Clinton. For we do not wrestle against James Comey. We do not wrestle against Donald Trump. We do not wrestle against your boss. We do not wrestle against your husband or wife. We do not wrestle against your children. We do not wrestle against the church. We don't wrestle against the pastor. 
We don't wrestle against the economy. We don't wrestle against Russia. We don't wrestle against Mexico. We don't wrestle against immigrants. We don't wrestle against other races. We don't wrestle against social warrior justice, social justice warriors. You get the picture? Everything we're blaming our problems on, God says, nope, those aren't your problems. Well, then who is our problem? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle against somebody, and who is that? But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. That's worse, isn't it? That's worse than the government. That's worse than your in-laws. That's worse than your job. So, yeah, we don't wrestle against people who we like to put the blame on, we like to attack and tear down and oppose, and if God would just get rid of them, then we could move forward. No, we wrestle against something worse, something real. Spiritual wickedness and Satan and his demons are real, and they are working against the church. I remember when I was a kid, when I was a kid, teenager maybe, I would drive past places like Jehovah Witness uh, Kingdom Halls or Mormon temples, and I understood that those were false churches, that they were teaching a false gospel. And I remember thinking, if we could just get rid of that building, if we could just tear that building down, wouldn't that be great? Get rid of all the kingdom halls. Get rid of all the Mormon temples. Get rid of that wickedness. But what I didn't get was the people will just find something else. Satan will produce some new form of wickedness. Get rid of religion, false religion, great. We'll just bring in money. We'll just bring in politics. We're not religious. We're just political. We're not religious. We're just seeking power. There's always something. And that's what God's telling us here. You've got people who are trying to hurt you in your life, family, friends, politics, whatever. They're trying to hurt you. God's saying they're not really the problem. There's something behind them, something bigger. Powers in heavenly places. That means above us, around us. Evil at work. And if you don't account for that evil, you can't explain some things in this world. You can't explain school shootings. You can't explain mass murder. You can't explain the corruption of people's soul through things like pornography, prostitution, drugs. What's happening to Baltimore City? Satan is destroying Baltimore City. You can't explain mass evil because people did the wrong thing. And the Bible tells us that. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against Satan. It's real. And if we're not aware of it, we're going to continue to attack people. We're going to tear down people who don't agree with us because we think they're the problem. But do you wonder where Jesus is in this passage? This is funny. You know what Jesus' name is? Joshua. Jesus' name is not really Jesus. That's an American word. His name is Yeshua or Jesus. It's Greek and Hebrew. Yeshua is trans translated Joshua. I, I, it sort of jumped out at me. You could read this. And Moses said to Jesus, choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. So Jesus did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. Now, I'm not identifying Joshua in the Old Testament with Jesus. But there's a reason that God chose that name and then gave it to the Son of God. So when you're looking for Jesus in the Old Testament, there's a clue. Jesus picked a name. Out of all the names he could have picked, he picked this name. And then included it in the story. And what's Joshua doing here? What is Jesus, 
the old Jesus, the human, the weak Jesus, what is he doing? He's fighting. The divine warrior here is God through Joshua. But the divine warrior comes back in the New Testament, and it's Joshua. Except it's not God and Joshua, it's Joshua as God. It's the human and divine person in Christ. Joshua Christ. It's hard for us to get that, isn't it? It's like, no, 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 no. The Bible says it. God is making it easy for us. He's like, where do we find, what is Jesus going to do for us? The same thing Joshua did for them. Go out with a sword and fight. That's what Jesus did on the cross. The cross is a battle where a divine warrior fights against spiritual evil. Ephesians 1.19 says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the workings of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. Remember the things we're fighting? Jesus was raised above them. Colossians 2 says, On the cross, Jesus, when he died on the cross, he, having disarmed principalities and powers... You don't worry, use words like disarm unless you're talking about battles. He disarmed. You ever seen someone disarmed? It means you take their weapon away from them and by force. Jesus on the cross forcefully took away the weapons from Satan. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. See what Joshua did to the Amalekites? He made them look bad because he killed them. They showed up with their camels and their experience and their abilities and got beat by a bunch of former slaves. Jesus shows up on the cross and dies and beats everybody. He's a divine warrior. He's fighting for us. So all these evil that's coming over us, the evil we see in the world, God's fought it already. The cross is God's victory over that evil. But look further. Jesus is also Moses. The book of Hebrews makes it very clear that Jesus is a better version of Moses. He's the true Moses. What does Moses do here? He goes between the people who are fighting, who are being attacked, and God. He intercedes for them. It's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus is the divine human Moses, the divine human priest who intercedes for us. You need God's power? You need someone to go to God and say, give them your power. You need a Moses. That's Jesus. It's not the pastor. It's Jesus. In Hebrews 7, God makes it clear. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. Moses was one of those priests. But he, Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. They knew what Moses did for the people of Israel. God is saying, Jesus is doing that for you now. Moses died. And you know what happened when he died? They had to find somebody new. And that person died. It just keeps on happening over and over again. So God says, here's Jesus. He's not going to die again. He's done. Now he lives forever to make intercession for you. Notice he says, therefore he's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. There's a progressive aspect to salvation. You got brought through the Red Sea. Great. You are God's people. You're going to make it to the promised land. But on the way, there's some Amalekites that are going to try to destroy you. Jesus is still saving you. Saved to the uttermost from the Red Sea to the promised land. Aren't you glad that his arms never get tired? 
He never drops his arms interceding for you. The Bible gives us an example. Matthew chapter 26, Jesus goes to pray before he dies on the cross. Then Jesus came with him to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Help me. Like Aaron and her helped Moses. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, Father, it is possible to let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me, unless I drink it, your will be done. He sweat drops of blood. And he comes back, and he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. They couldn't hold him up. But what does Jesus do? So he left them, went away again, and prayed for the third time. Jesus didn't give up because they let him down. He said, I need you to help me, but I'll continue even though you don't. Then he died, now he's glorified, he doesn't need people's help anymore, but that's who Jesus is. When Moses' arms got tired, he, the people started losing. When Jesus got tired here in the garden, he didn't stop. No one was there to hold his arms up. He said, I'll do it anyway. Now he's in heaven. And if you think he was great on earth, you should see him in heaven. Talk about keeping your hands up. So now he's saying, God, give those people, my people, your power. And as long as Jesus keeps on praying for us, we will get that power, no matter what. You see the promise here? There's a warning that the devil's going to put all of his power to kill you. There's also a promise that Jesus is praying for you, and he never stops. And when Jesus prays for you, you get what he prays for. So we win the battle. You need to trust Jesus or you're going to die. The spiritual forces will overcome you. It may come in different forms. It may be sickness. It may be depression. It may be physical loss. It may be family loss. I don't know how Satan works. I don't know what Satan's doing. I don't know his tactics. I don't know his plans. He usually works in ways that we don't expect. He's a master of deception. But he is working. How do you fight him? You trust Christ. You look to the man on the hill raising his arms for you. You look at Christ winning the battle for you and you trust him, does Christ fight for you? Then you're okay. But God says, I'll give you one more gift. I'll let you participate. He says, I'll do everything that you need, but I'll let you join me. You see the gift that God is saying? He goes, I'm going to defeat every evil power in this world, and you get to come with me. You get to sort of help me out a little bit. I don't need your help, and I've done all the work, but you get to participate. So how do we cooperate with Jesus? Like Moses, like Joshua, like the people, we have a part to play. Romans 16, 20 says something really interesting. It talks about this battle, and God destroys the enemy, right? It says, and the God of peace will crush Satan. Aren't you glad? Under your feet shortly. Wait a minute, I thought Jesus crushed the serpent. Yes, he did. But here it says that, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. So did Jesus crush it, or is he going to crush it under our feet? Yes. 
Yes. Trust God to do everything for you and then step on Satan. God's working through us to defeat the enemy. We get to participate in the battle. We don't have to sit on the sidelines and watch. Ephesians 4, 7, and 8 says, But to each one of us, grace, mercy, unmerited favor was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. Christ did the work and gave gifts to men. God has given you the gift of fighting Satan. He's given you the gift of participating in a battle that's as big as the universe and as long as history. Infinity Wars has got nothing on this battle. Think of the cosmic aspect here. You get to participate in casting down the creature that brought evil into the, cre- into the world. You get to help. I don't know what you think about yourself, but here's what God thinks about you. He says, I want you to come with me and fight Satan. And you can't do it, so here are some gifts I've given to you. Do you want to join in that fight? Knowing that Joshua the warrior is going to win it for you and that Moses the interceder is going to pray for you, and now you get to participate? Here are three ways that you can participate. Prayer and praise. Just like they did, they depended on God. How do you fight Satan? You pray, God, defeat Satan. And just like Moses raised his hands, God will do it. And you don't say, well, it was the prayer that brought it. No. Moses raising his hands, he said, it was my hands that brought the battle. But we pray anyway. That's how God works. And then we praise him for it. And in those acts, Satan is defeated. God wants you to pray and praise to fight Satan. And if you won't pray, and if you won't praise, you don't get to fight. You're not part of the battle anymore. Ephesians 6, we know 6 is the armor of God. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Divine warrior imagery here. God's saying you get to participate in the divine warrior theme. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all to stand. Eight, verse 18, praying always with all prayers and supplication of the Spirit, being watchful to the end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. You want to be a divine warrior? You want to fight with God? Pray. Like, well, no, I need to actually fight. I need to go and confront that person. I need to stand up against evil. You need to pray. We don't pray, do we? We try to figure out things to do, efforts to, to participate in. God is saying, you need to pray because you need to depend on me. Remember the all-night prayer meetings? Why don't we do those anymore? Here's one reason. Because you come on Sunday morning and you do them. We have men pray. We have women pray. We gather together and pray every single week. We don't need a special prayer meeting. You need to show up to church and pray with us. And here's something else. We do it again on Sunday night. The whole church gathers on Sunday night, the ones that are here, and we bring prayer requests, and we pray for each other. You need to be there for that. You need to be there and pray with us because that's how Satan is defeated. It's not a guilt trip. It's, a, it's an invitation to join God in the battle. See, that's what happened here. When Moses needed help, what happened? God didn't come down and help him. He gave him Aaron and Hur. And Aaron and Hur stood next to him and held his arms up. Who is that? That's the church. There's a double imagery here. There's Christ fulfilling it, but it's also giving a model for how we should pray not by yourself, with Christians. 
we come together for corporate prayer. And in corporate prayer, we lift each other up. The New Testament wasn't written to you by yourself. None of the books in the New Testament were written to you. They're written to the church. And it tells the church to pray. And it tells the church to help one another and lift one another up and encourage one another. Are you doing that? Because if you're not, you're sitting on the sidelines while God's fighting a battle. So join us while we very feebly and very uh, incorrectly often try to fight, but still participate. Trust God to fight for you and then join a minute. Let's pray.